I'm very happy to be joined today by Jan Jenisch, the CEO of Holsim, a 110-year-old, Swiss-originated, global leader in building materials and solutions. Jan is also the elected president of the Global Cement and Concrete Association, a member of the executive committee of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, a CEO-led community of over 200 of the world's leading businesses committed to accelerating system transformations needed for a net zero, nature positive and more equitable future. And finally, Jan is also an active member of the European Roundtable for Industry. Welcome, Jan, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jean Francois. So, Jan, you took the helm at Holcim in 2017 after five years at the, at the head of SICA, a global leader in innovative systems and products for the building and automotive sectors. Your tenure at SICA was very successful with an enormous amount of top and bottom line growth that led to the introduction of SICA in the SME, uh, meaning the, the Swiss market index composed of the 20 largest market caps. So a very successful run. Yes, that's correct, Jean-François. Thank you for the nice intro. So you then joined Holcim two years into its merger with historical competitor Lafarge, a merger that probably proved a little bit more complex than anticipated, and, and we'll come back to that. And since then, which means over the last five years, You've led Hosim through strategic shifts and bold moves, including a number of acquisitions and divestments, resulting today in revenues of about 27 billion Swiss francs last year, 70,000 people worldwide, industry-leading ESG ratings, record profitability levels, and a stock price performance that positions you at or near the top of your industry peers. And today, the company stands as a global leader in innovative building solutions with the aim to support, and these are important words and we'll get into them, to support the development of a sustainable building industry, including through circular constructions, among other ideas. And this is an important area because buildings generate about 38%, if I understand correctly, of global CO2 emissions. So if we want the world to move more closely and more faster to a net zero, clearly we must improve the carbon footprint of constructing and operating buildings. Is that a fair summary? <laughs> yeah, it has been a very uh, demanding times, but also very exciting times. I remember when I uh, arrived in Holcim in 2017, there was number one priority was to bring the merger to a successful um, end, basically to have a new operating model, make people comfortable, make sure we have the right leadership team, make sure we get a bit leaner, put a strategy in place, and most important, uh, put the financial performance to work. We were not that successful in financial terms when I arrived, regarding cash flow, return investment capital and all that. We still had a quite a significant debt level and we uh, fixed all that. And um, nowadays we're very agile, very, I would say, aggressive group. And now our new uh, target is to become the most innovative and sustainable building solution company in the world. Wonderful. So first, let's start with a key question uh, that all our listeners are going to ask themselves. Cement and concrete are materials that are inherently water consuming and carbon producing. And in a world that must reduce its carbon footprint and also needs to watch water consumption, clearly there's a question, which is why does the world continue 
to produce and use so much cement and concrete. What are the advantages of these materials? Well, I think it's simply the best uh, building material there is when it comes to performance, when it comes to cost, when it comes to design flexibility, uh, it's earthquake resistant, it's fire resistant. It has uh, huge advantages. And to be clear, Holcim is on the way to fully decarbonize those products. But maybe let me um, explain a bit the challenge we have way beyond cement, because we have the same challenge for most building materials, is it steel, is it glass, is it insulation materials, they all have a high CO2 footprint. And as you mentioned in the beginning, building and living is 38% of our global CO2 footprint. And only 30% is the build phase, so is the materials, and 70% is the operating of the buildings right. and the infrastructure. So everything we need on energy side, heating, cooling, and all of that. And the real solution we have to find is how do we want to build for the future? So sustainable materials, but even more important, sustainable operation. What energy source to be used, how efficient buildings have to be, how to use solar and wind at the buildings to be uh, power producing. And that's the real system we have to develop. Right. So please allow me to get back to this in a second. But I guess your answer is... Look, those are indeed water consuming and carbon producing, but you have to understand they are probably the least bad solution we have in order to build from an environmental point of view. And also they are, as you said, very flexible, fireproof and so on. So, so if the world needs to continue to produce uh, cement and concrete, then obviously we need to do so in an increasingly carbon efficient way. Now, I know that Holcim has been working very hard at reducing the carbon footprint of these activities. Can you walk us through some of the initiatives that you have either developed or inherited and accelerated to do so? So we can, over the next few years, we can already reduce the CO2 footprint of our products by around 50% with relatively conventional steps by using more alternative raw materials to start with, materials which are already decarbonized, we can fully equip our plants to run on alternative fuels and on renewable energies. And then we want to further reduce the amount of freshly produced cement in the final product. Right. Already today, we only need about 50% of the cement needs to be produced fresh. And 50% can be a CO2 neutral byproduct like a limestone or like construction and demolition waste. And then you go from there because cement is not a final product, it's a pre-product for concrete, for gypsum boards, for mortars and for all sorts of building materials. And then you have to further reduce the CO2 in the products which are actually used on the construction site. So we have a huge potential and to be honest, we have just started to do that. We just started three years ago to really launch decisive plans to decarbonize Holcim, to decarbonize our building solutions. How much innovation goes into reducing this carbon footprint? We have in, in at Holcim, we have the innovation is, is ready to be implemented. We have to make it work first from the logistics. You have to imagine in the future, we want to be construction demolition waste, a large part of our new products. Already, so, so this is circular, circular, yeah. circular yeah. economy, saying, you know, this is stuff that we already produced, yeah. we can reintegrate it. Already today, we take more than 1,000 trucks of construction demolition waste back to our plants, to our sites. So this is 1,000 trucks of concrete, of bricks and other materials, and they can be fully recycled 
100% and no down cycle. And we literally put them back into our new products. So this is, I think, the Champions League of uh, future buildings. And now you can imagine, today we do already 1,000 trucks. Now we want to go to 2,000 to 10,000 trucks. You can imagine the logistics we need from the demolition companies to operating the recycling platforms, and we are heavily investing into that. So, so all this, you know, we are talking about really uh, huge volumes, and we need to make this happen at our sites. So one aspect is innovation, but as mm -hmm. I'm listening to you, the other is scaling up. Yeah. And the scaling up is complex. No, it's not complex. It needs to be done. You can, <laughs> you can imagine we suddenly need recycling centers to take in demolition waste, recycle it, and then you're going to end up with, even you recycle, you have like 10 different grades of products. So you have to do that. You have to quality check, and then you have to bring them back. The most simple recycling goes into road construction. The most sophisticated goes into concrete. And the most highest quality recycling goes directly even into the cement. So you have to make this happen, and that's what we're doing. This recycling sounds like a win-win, but in practice, developing greener products does not necessarily guarantee that customers will be, will be using them and will be adopting them. Tell us about some of the no. challenges that you faced when you started coming up with this, you know, this greener product. No, we have to. This is something you cannot do alone. This has all to be together, right? So we just talked about recycling. So I need to invest. I also need to partner with demolition companies. And then I have to get it approved into the building norms. Right. So I need the regulator to say, okay, uh, Holcim can now use 20% demolition waste in the cement or in the future, even 50%. So they need to be comfortable and do that testing. Maybe accelerated would be great because we have the product ready and it will just be allowed in the European Union like next year to be used. So, so that's not country by country, that's European Union. European Union. In Switzerland, we have the product already since three years. Okay. It's our biggest selling product because it's well, the best possible solution to put uh, right. uh, old buildings back into new. And uh, the Swiss approved it in the building norms three years ago. European Union, most likely next year. So that's one side. Then we have the customer you just mentioned. The customer needs to be aware that they can already reduce the carbon footprint. Uh, this is why we launched our green product range. So we have EcoPact for concrete, EcoPlan for cement, and they have a simple proposition, at least 30% less CO2 in those products. And to be also fair here, that's the first time we really make uh, environment uh, USP for product. And that's a super success. We introduced for concrete the green range just about two years ago. We did it globally. And already now we have 12% of entire concrete sales with this product. Now, this triggers a question because I, I was fortunate to work with Holcim but a number of years ago, and 2004 to 2010. And back then, a big discussion was how do we decommoditize the product? <laughs> And I remember that there was still a lot of discussions at the time about tons. And even though that, you know, they were trying to decommoditize, there yeah. was still somewhat of a, of a commodity mentality. How, how have you been able to start influencing this aspect of the culture to say, look, there are probably parts of our portfolio that are somewhat commoditized, but we're investing enormous time and energy in decommoditizing, which means we now need to think mm -hmm. about value pricing and more margin than volume. So any, any comment on the, on the cultural change? Yeah. No, absolutely. That's a, you, you hit it right, the nail on the head. That's exactly our challenge. We have to transform 
into making sustainability not only a must for our operations, but making it a, a new selling proposition for the customer, convincing everyone this is the product to buy. The same for circular, this is also a new dimension. So we are coming from this volume producer, like you described it, where we have a lot of production engineers very uh, concerned with how many tons they produce a day, right. can they have another cost saving. So that was a bit the mindset, right? And then now suddenly we have uh, decarbonization of the whole process, plus selling decarbonized products and making the circular work. So we have like three new dimensions and that's uh, quite uh, exciting. For me, it's very exciting eh? because we of need course. to transform, we need to change, we need to have better marketing. We have to have different target groups. You can imagine we have to talk now to cities. Cities are the fastest to adopt uh, green policies in their investment decisions. So we have to talk to the cities. We have to talk to big companies, which are the first one to also adopt the green procurement uh, decisions. So, so to make this all work together, right? Because we need the innovation, as you said, we need the regulator to approve the products, but we need then also the customer and the influencers to support it. Has this required a lot of retraining of, of your sales and marketing folks? <laughs> yeah, it, it's such a thing, you know, if you have a good engineer, a good production guy, you know, I don't believe you should make the person a, a sales or marketing person, right? So what we did, we brought a few people extra in, professional marketing people, for example, to make sure that our new sales proposition for the customer is properly communicated. Okay, so more hiring of new talent with the new capabilities than massive retraining. It's not a lot of talent you need, but you need like, like two, three people to really uh, come to a different level. Okay. Now. You guys are going one step further, right? So you're saying on one side, we're working hard at producing cement and concrete in a more sustainable way, but we can also help the world to consume less of it through more intelligent designs of yeah. buildings. And, and this has led you to acquire a number of adjacent businesses hmm. and to develop a solution unit. Tell us about why and how you went about this, this expansion and this somewhat counterintuitive approach that says we're going to help you to use less of our products. <laughs> well, first we have to see we need to build much more for the future. You have to see we have the growing world population. All that growth happens in the cities. So urbanization, huge is urbanization needs yeah. an amount of new solutions for infrastructure. Uh, we have still a billion people living in insufficient living conditions, right? With no access to water, no access to electricity. So we have huge demand basically from all different segment of people for their lives. And at the same time, we have to make this now sustainable, right? So we have to build more, but better with less. So we have a huge demand now to make the old buildings sustainable. So to properly insulate them, to properly upgrade the energy source, to properly put in some energy generating units like solar roofs or something like that, to put in green roofs in the cities to uh, help the heat burden in the cities. So we have a lot to do and now we have to do it much smarter. So I'm not worried to sell less volume because I'm sure I will sell more value. Okay. And, and this is what we try to do. And most recently with our acquisitions to enter the roofing systems. We spent about $5 billion the last 15 months to buy three companies in the roofing segment. And that's how we want to position Holcim closer to the customer, but also be part of the solution for more energy efficient buildings. You have to imagine the roof is in the past 20, 30 years ago, it was not even insulated, right? It was just there to keep the, 
the rain outside and nowadays has to be fully insulated because most of the heat or the cool air will go out through the roof, so you have to stop it. At the same time, you want a functional roof, so it has to be a green roof or it has to be a solar roof or maybe a reflective cool roof to keep the building uh, modest in, in hot climates. So uh, a lot to be done, a lot of innovation. So happy we entered that segment. And, and that is how you see the new Holcim. We will do cement also in the future. We will decarbonize it, but we want to develop the company also to participate more into systems for buildings. Now, when you talk systems for buildings, what coming to my mind, and maybe this is wrong and you'll correct me, is that there's also architects, designers, there's lots of other professions, maybe even uh, cities in terms of the guidelines that they give. So, so it seems that there are a lot of external stakeholders that you would have to coordinate with. This how, is, how is that working? I think the, the granularity in building with all the architects, different cities, all the different climates you're having, different development stages in the world, that's very granular, makes it exciting, but also makes it challenging to have like one solution globally, right? So you okay. have to be uh, very local and you, the solution you have maybe in Switzerland will not work in New York and the other way around. So you have to be uh, very receptive to uh, the different local situations and demands. But it seems to me that there's also a capability issue, right, for your folks that, again, historically, somebody would say, well, I need so much of this product. And now it's what I'm hearing is now we're going to go to some of these decision makers and we're going to say, hey, actually, we could do a lot better here. We could do a lot better there. So, so did you have those capabilities to cooperate or did you have to develop them? Or again, is this a case of we hired a few people? No, I think Holcim was always close to the customers, so close to the owner, the developer, the main contractor to the architects and civil engineers. Okay. These were always like our, how do you call it, buying center or something. But now it becomes even more important because we have this new dimension we talked about before, circular construction and then sustainability. So, so these are new dimensions and these are huge dimensions and dimensions we need to develop together. So that's why the dialogue we had in the past needs to be even uh, and more enriched yeah. and touch on Absolutely. more possibilities. Yeah. Understood. Now, along the way, you also divested a few sizable businesses, notably your activities in, in Brazil and in India, two countries, obviously, that are likely to engage in an enormous amount of construction over the next few years. What was the reasoning? Well, we have so many opportunities to grow the company. As we just talked about, uh, we need to build more, better with less in the future. So, so we need to prepare ourselves. And to build up a meaningful uh, new fourth leg for the company, uh, like with the roofing systems, we need to also free cash to be able to invest. Okay. So that's why we had to take the decision to uh, divest a few countries. The countries we divest are the other emerging countries, which are you know, rather on the beginning of the building cycles. And we want to focus more Europe, North America, where we can sell all our four business segments from cement to roofing systems. So you're saying, A, I needed the cash in order to buy these other activities, and B, in those more developing economies, it is harder for me to sell this solution approach, and so I'd rather focus in areas where the market is more developed. The roofing systems we are selling now, they are top sellers in North America and in Europe. 
if you try to sell them in India, there's not really a market yet. Okay. There will be a market in 20 years, 30 years, but, but not for the foreseeable future. That's why we had to take a decision with some portfolio changes to transform meaningful and that means unfortunately to let go some countries that's you know actually very sad I, I don't like to do that you know I have visited all these countries I'm close to the teams there and that's not a that's not the same like buying a company buying a company that's a that's a very positive thing to divest a country is 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 not glamorous but needs to be done yeah, and I want to ask you a tricky question, if I may. Um, when I read about the divestment in India, I discussed it with a few colleagues. And, you know, what came through from the press release was the point that you just made. And I said, you know, wow, this is, this is really good because uh, this is, again, Wholesim deciding to focus its resources in, in areas where they think they can have a really big impact. Some of my colleagues also said, yeah, but look, in India and in Brazil, they will continue to produce cement and concrete, but they will probably not be as good, at, as, good as wholesome at, at reducing the footprint of these activities. So they said from a system perspective, from a, from a world mm -hmm. perspective, are we losing something? Is, is wholesome somehow outsourcing its pollution to countries or operators that can afford to pollute more than you guys? And, and it's a bit of a controversial no, question. It's not. No, it's not. And I can answer this. So our decision was not to divest cement. I, I hear that sometimes, like hold sim leaves cement or something. That is not correct. We divested emerging markets with the entire footprint. And all the other markets we stay in, we keep doing cement. So in North America, Europe, we talked about we have the full, from the cement to the roofing systems, we have the full range. So uh, we are just actually divesting countries, not cement. So while India was a large contributor to our cement volumes, that's correct. But that was not the reason why we did that step. But you were, I think, the first uh, among your peers as a company to engage in sustainability-linked financing by issuing green bonds, I think, in November 2020. Yeah. And of course, these green bonds obligate you to pay a premium to holders if you fail yeah. to meet certain CO2 targets. Again, is, is that helpful in this respect, that the parts that we divest are the ones that would be... <laughs> no, we, we run actually a very uh, sustainable operation in India, so, so that didn't hurt us up to now at all. Yeah, I think the green invest, the green bonds is just another element in the whole sustainability journey. Our promise to decarbonize is fully um, uh, checked by the... Uh, science-based target initiative. It's very important for me that we just not make announcements, but we have concrete roadmaps behind, and that's even checked by organizations like the science-based target initiatives. We worked with them from the beginning, and they are basically checking, approving all our action plans we are having, and um, and that's good this way. And the bond is another, let's say, uh, you know, a, a firm promise that we are doing what we're doing. So I'm very happy to do that. Last question on, on this front. Should governments, national, regional, somehow world governments, be setting somehow either more equal or more even or tighter targets to help companies like you to do well financially by doing good for the world? I think we need a proper framework to operate. Um, the European Union is the most advanced uh, with their carbon certificate scheme, where the CO2 price is already priced at 80 to 100 euros. So you have to imagine that price was 
four years ago was seven euros, went to 20 and the last year or so went up to 100 euros. So you can imagine that helps a lot in our decarbonization. We did approve for investment projects to reduce the CO2 footprint in our factories three and a half years ago with a carbon price of 20 euros and we, we kicked off 50 projects to basically reduce the CO2 by 15% in the European plants. And the payback was with 20 euros per ton of CO2. You can imagine how rich those projects are right now and that we made actually the mistake not to have 100 projects, right? And that's with these developments in sustainability, it goes so fast and the CO2 price shows that from seven to 20 to 100 that you have to think ahead. And, and I told my guys already three years ago, you calculate that investment project now with 20 euros, why don't you have a scenario for 50 or 100 euros? Right. And that's the challenge we are having. This is such a agile thing that we have to uh, think ahead a lot, yeah. And, and of course, those are materials that don't travel so well between Asia and Europe. So when Europe has tighter regulations, it doesn't expose you to unfair competition from other parts of the world. Is that right? So, so um, I didn't fully answer your, your question before. So we have a very uh, proper system, I think, in Europe, also because the CO2 price is kind of a market mechanism. So I was always a big supporter of it. And it can even go beyond 100 euros. We are not afraid of that because it will pay off for us. Other markets of the world, that's the question who will follow, right? We have a few provinces in Canada with a carbon price at the moment, but there is no global agreement. And we know that the Paris Agreement didn't work out a few years back. And I think that's maybe on a global scale, the biggest challenge. Can we make decarbonization work with all countries? And that's a I think an unanswered question, uh, is China, is India, uh, other parts of the world, do they follow the Europeans? What is uh, USA doing? Can they afford to put meaningful uh, market mechanism in place while they already uh, think uh, $5 per gallon of, of fuel is, is too much or too high? Do you have different standards and different goals in different countries? So Europe, you said we have this market, but if I go to Canada or to the US, would Holcim have different standards and different objectives? Because again, the regulatory context is different. Uh, and the market context is different. So we have only one policy worldwide. We wanna have the most modern operation. All the decarbonization initiatives we have, we do in all our plants globally. Okay. But there's a difference in speed because the European Union has such a tight system in place already and leading that this year we will reach already 65% of our energy in the plants comes from alternative fuel. So basically we are one of the biggest waste recyclers. 65. 65. And in the US this is maybe only around 10% simply because the waste is not available in the same magnitude. So also this is a market question we would love to have also in the US with investment programs to increase the amount of alternative fuel. But the system at the moment, they still have all these very low cost dump sites and so on. So, so the system has to also develop. Now, thank you for these comments on the macro and industry environments. As I said at the beginning, I also want to ask you one or two questions about the Lafarge Wholesim merger, which it seems now may have been more of a, of a Wholesim integrating Lafarge. But so from the outside, it seems to have been more difficult than initially anticipated. Was it that the principals, mainly the shareholders, were 
a little bit overly optimistic and underestimated the difficulties? Or is it simply that, hey, look, guys, this was a merger between two very large and complex organizations that were historical competitors. And, you know, these mergers are inherently difficult to pull off. Yeah, I think to be fair, you know, such a big merger and merger of equals, as it was announced, is a bit complex also when it comes to local approval processes to right. get it past the regulator. Then the leadership team has to uh, work out and so on. So it doesn't go as, as fast and as easy maybe as on the paper uh, you draft in the beginning. So, um, but look, we are a building material company which is very localized. So we have more than 2,300 production sites. And when I arrived in the company, I saw that uh, the merger was excellent to strengthen our positions in those countries. And the people are, you know, on the ground, they are building materials guys, they go on construction sites, they are very close to the customer, as we discussed before. So there was no big culture shock or anything. And only at the headquarter, they were a little bit too busy with themselves, you know, trying to figure out who is the boss for this or that. So, and I put an end to this very, very fast. And then uh, I think we didn't debate much uh, about it after the first six months or so. So with the troops, relatively good integration, a little bit more difficult at the top, but again, manageable, especially with a new CEO coming from outside, huh? not being from either party. Yeah, they had, of course, a merger of equals. So they had, they didn't have a quota, but it was important. Oh, what is the legacy of a person being appointed? And then I come and I just pick the best one for the position. I closed all these uh, legacy offices. You know, they had not closed the headquarters in Zurich, not the headquarters in Paris. So I had to do that. And uh, it helped a lot to put an end to any possible uh, conflicts. So the fact that you came from outside helped? I think that was not a disadvantage. At the same time, you need to have someone who knows the industry, right? You can't right. have someone to come from semiconductors or automotive that would not be maybe fast enough to take all those decisions with the right eye on what's need to be done. But of course, Sika had construction is one sure. of its main markets. So yeah. in that sense, you were the ideal outsider. You knew the industry. You were not an industry outsider, but you were a company outsider. Now, when you came into the situation, there were a number of complexities still uh, operating and, and some of them are still ongoing. Um, my question is, how do you make sure that you don't get distracted by some of these challenges and, and you stay focused on the most important issues? I think that's probably the single biggest challenge of, of any leader to set the right priorities. Huh? Because if you uh, don't do that, you can your day has to, be, has to have 72 hours or something, and you don't get things done. So I think for any leader, the biggest decision is what not to do. Or okay. so what not to do, what to delegate, and what to lead him or herself. That's very big, and I, I'm quite good with the priorities that I say, I do this, I don't do this, and this is done by someone else. So you said, what are we going to work on versus not work on? And among the ones I, we work on, there's the one I lead and then there's the one I delegate. Yeah, I think so. Leader should never be the bottleneck. You know, we had this in the before when you have a too undecisive leadership, then everything ends up on your desk and gets delayed and not decided. And, and for me, it's, I decide usually the small things on the spot or in a very short period of time, or I delegate to someone else. 
How do you choose which ones you keep versus the ones you delegate? <laughs> well, it's a mix of, I think, uh, I delegate. Sometimes I'm not competent for the topic, right? Okay. That's probably so the biggest one. Issue? So expertise. If I have someone more competent or I participate in the decision, but I need always people with the expertise, yeah. yeah. So I, I can't conclude this discussion without asking you a few more personal questions. First one is relatively broad. How would you describe yourself as a leader? If I, if I worked for you, what would strike me? Oh, you have to ask other people for that. I, I think But it's, they're not here, Jan, and, and you're the one who's here. I think it's important as a leader to be fair, first of all. Okay. You know, there's nothing is more easy than to demotivate other people, right? You know, the management gurus uh, talk about motivating people, but actually, first of all, you should not demotivate people. And the biggest demotivator is unfair evaluations of people or unfair decisions. So I think I try to be a very sound and fair observer and performance evaluator. So not to make any emotional decisions or not to favor people for other reasons than what they do for the company. So that's, I think, one principle I'm, I'm proud of, which I, I try to live. Okay. Any second principle? <laughs> the so second fairness is, my... is very important. <laughs> yeah. and, and again, the point you made, by the way, is very much supported by research. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that it's a lot more damaging to, to demotivate yeah. and a lot quicker, actually, to yeah. demotivate. And your point about fairness is also very much supported by research, that, that when people behave in ways that we find unreasonable, most of the time, it's because they perceive an unfair, they've been treated unfairly. So, so this is one important principle. Any second important principle? Oh, the second is, I think we talked about the priorities. And yeah. then for me, it's very important to really have your hands in the pie. So you need to be in the markets. You need to spend time to understand from decarbonization to processes in construction. You know, I don't think you can lead a company like Holcim properly if you don't have a certain expertise on the operations or on the customers. And so I spend a lot of time out in the field to uh, keep getting input from that side. Would your folks describe you as a hands-on sort of guy? <laughs> I'm not sure. I think so. I think so. I'm uh, pretty hands-on. I don't need a big delegation to travel with me or something. I think I'm pretty simple. Now, let me ask you a follow-up question on this because my perception of you is that you're, you could be qualified as a strong leader, energetic, driven, assertive, and decisive. And of course, those are important qualities for leaders. They can also sometimes be pushed too far, right? So a few years ago, I wrote an article that said that CEOs should be hard of hearing, meaning that they should have a mute button because you can't be constantly plugged into the complaints and the concerns of others. So once in a while you have to, to press the mute button and, and you don't hear them anymore. But of course, what happens is if you keep the mute button on for too long, you become deaf. And I've seen many CEOs over the years that started hard of hearing and left the mute button on for too long and they become a bit deaf. How do you guard against this? How do you decide now is the time to listen, and now is the time to look at them and say, thank you for this unsolicited feedback, and here is the direction. No, exactly. That's so important. I think one of your professors, Martha Mesnevsky, she developed this concept of uh, Buddha meets Hercules. 
and it, it, describing what you described, you know, like most think CEO has to be like Hercules leading the way, you know, uh, not looking left or right and with the mute button, you know, but the reality should be different. In reality, I think I'm in the Buddha, in the Buddha mood more than 80% of my time. And what is the Buddha is listening, trying to understand, asking the advice and expertise from others, spending time with people. And then the 20% is then to come out clearly and say, hey, for the targeting, our vision is to become the most sustainable and innovative building solution company. Our key KPIs are growth, our profit, cash flow, return on invested capital, right? And we're gonna to move to the fourth segment solutions and product. So I'm very decided, decided on, on those aspects, but in the daily life, I think you have to be very Buddha style. And if I compare this to the different stages in my professional life, I was maybe when I was a sales manager, right? You are probably 80% of the time you're Hercules because you have, to, uh, you have to lead your salespeople, right? You have to demand a lot from the factory to get the product out. So you're much more demanding and strong. The more I continue, the more Buddha I got. And I think today I'm 80% Buddha and maybe 20% strong leader. So listen a lot, discuss, mm -hmm. collect, but then once we've made a decision, then we're going to march. I think so, yeah. Now, you mentioned difference versus the beginning of your career. That's actually a question I wanted to ask you. You've been working professionally since the end of your studies for about 30 years, including at least 10 years as a CEO. How have you become a more effective leader? In what areas have you become more effective as a leader and, and maybe even also as a human being over the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years? Well, I don't know if I, you know, first of all, you know, on the career or professional life, I think you have to enjoy every, every step of it, every day, you know. I always, when people ask me, how do you become CEO or something, I always say, I didn't have a plan. It just happened because I just enjoyed every step. I was so excited when I was a sales manager, you know, I was excited to visit the customers and be successful. And then I stepped up and enjoyed every, every moment of the journey. And I was obviously always very ambitious. Your question is a tricky one. I think you have to be aware as an older executive that this mix of experience, you gain experience, right? You also gain a bit more Buddha if you develop in the right direction. You are able to stop the Hercules and don't push the, the silent button too often and, uh, and listen and work with people, develop people. And then at the same time, you have to keep ambition and energy. And this usually may be declines a bit over time. So that's a bit, I think, the, the challenge you have to watch very actively. This developing your Buddha nature, <laughs> uh, does this require work? So are you conscious of it? Do you sometimes talk to yourself? Do you say, Jan, take a deep breath? Uh, do, do, yes, do you have yeah, this yeah, inner absolutely. dialogue? Absolutely. And, and you, your professor, Martha, she helped me with this because she put it in a concept because you sometimes have a meeting and I love to have, uh, you know, uh, meetings with all different expertise when we have an issue. Then we have eight, 10 people and we discuss it and everyone can talk on the same level, right? And then sometimes someone is, takes, is lengthy in the presentation or, or maybe is not contributing much content-wise, you know, and then I always say to myself, Buddha, Buddha. Maybe in the past, maybe 20 years ago, I would say, okay, okay, cut it, you have one more minute, you know? Like when I was 30 years old, I would tell the person, okay, we, we heard enough, you know? <laughs> next so, one, next so, one. So you're making effort to be more patient. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and the concept helped me because I said, no, this is a Buddha meeting, so, uh, so don't smart out other people, just let everyone uh, raise uh, their voice and opinion. 
That's interesting. You just said this is a Buddha meeting. So it means you think about it ahead of time. At the beginning of the meeting, you tell yourself, so this meeting, I must be young like this. No, no, just have me. I, ha I like this brainstorm meeting. So you have an issue, whatever it is, a new product, a new plant, decarbonize this, or how to sell the new EcoPact, you know, and then you better have a brainstorming, right? right. And not a decision to start with. So, so I like that. And then just sometimes, so I know it's a Buddha meeting, but then even if you sometimes get a little bit impatient, then helps me to say, not the no listening button, I have the Buddha button and I press it and I'm sitting there. Breathe. Very relaxed. Very good. <laughs> Last question. Being the CEO of an international company like Hosim is, is, of course, very demanding, especially nowadays. Now, managing yourself at peak performance is probably not completely trivial, right? And, and so what are some of the, of the practices that you already mentioned prioritizing as, as a key component? What else would you share with us in terms of how you maintain yourself at peak performance? Oh, I think there's no secret really to it. I think you have to be aware it's demanding and you have to have joy. You know, I get a lot of questions from younger people, work-life balance, what a terrible work-life balance I'm having. And I say I have a perfect one because I love my work. So maybe I work more than traditional employee, but, but I enjoy it a lot. So the work doesn't stress me very much. So, and that's my recommendation always to younger people. You have to do a work you not only like, you have to also work for a company, is it a startup or a bigger company, where there is the purpose you agree with, right? And then you will be very happy to work there. And if that's not given, nothing will make you happy. So my work-life balance is a bit different and I'm not really stressed. You said I, there's a lot of joy. Yeah. So, so last, last question, where does the joy come from? So what makes you joyful? in being the CEO of Holcim? <laughs> oh, the, because we achieve things, we move things. The, the biggest joy I have is with people. The biggest joy is if something happens, something positive happens without me. That's my biggest joy. Someone brings a big project, someone has a success here, someone acquires a company, and I was not even involved. That makes me very proud. Jan, thank you very much. We wish you, of course, continued success at a personal level, but also at an organizational level, because as we said, the construction industry is an important part of society's development. It is also a significant component to the climate change challenges. And so we're rooting for you that you're going to be able to continue to invent new solutions to enable the world to function, but in a more sustainable way. Best wishes to you. Thank you, Jean-Francois.